Good morning, please have a seat. Um, if we've not met before, my name's George. Um, I'm a member of the congregation here, and it's uh, great to have you with us this morning. Um, do keep your Bibles open from those two readings. Thank you so much for those that read those for us as we get stuck, stuck into Genesis this morning. But first, I want to ask you a question. How do you react when you see a warning sign? How do you react when you see a warning sign? Many of you have probably visited Lindisfarne up the coast from here. If you haven't, I strongly recommend. It's a lovely bit of coastline. But in order to get there, you have to cross over a tidal causeway. And at low tide, it's perfectly safe to drive across. But as you approach, there are several signs like this. <clears throat> Danger, do not proceed when water reaches the causeway. Sounds clear enough, right? Sadly, several times a year, there are stories in the local news about how people willingly ignore the signs and try to drive across anyway. They think it looks safe, um, but at high tide, the road gets submerged like this. And then if they still plow on thinking, that's ah, just a little bit of a puddle, they can end up like this. <laughs> and then they have to get the Coast Guard out to rescue them. <sighs> we wouldn't do that, of course, would we? And this morning we're looking at the account of Noah and the flood, and it's a really familiar story, isn't it? But don't switch off, because Noah still serves as a warning sign for us today, and we'd be foolish to ignore it. So let me pray as we look at God's word together. Father God, help us this morning as we consider your ways here in the book of Genesis. Help us not to miss the warnings and gravity of your righteous and holy judgment, but also to see the great hope that you offer out to each one of us. Amen. Well, so far in Genesis, we've seen how God has created this perfect world, which he called good, and he created mankind, you and me, in his own image. And we know that God's creation is then spoiled by mankind turning its back on God and saying, no to his good plans. And last week we looked at the first bit of chapter 6, which describes a backdrop of growing wickedness on the earth. And we were briefly introduced to Noah, um, who when he was born, his dad Lamech said, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And because in the Hebrew, Noah's name sounds a lot like rest or relief. And it's a prophecy about what Noah will bring. He will bring rest for a sin-stained land. And that provides the link for my two points today, the first of which is that rest will come through judgment, and secondly, that rest will come ultimately in a new creation. But before we dive into that, I just want to pull into a quick lay-by, as we sometimes do here, and think, was this a real event? that happened, or is it more of a metaphor, a made-up story to make a point? And there's been plenty of ink spilled, of course, um, but I'm convinced that it was a real, um, real event for two reasons. Firstly, the language in the text that we read is really specific. It's full of facts, details, names, dates. It's not written in the structure of poetry. It's meant to be read as fact. And we're given the family tree of Noah, aren't we? Just before this bit of the passage, as a way of saying, these are real people that lived. And secondly, Jesus himself refers to the flood in Matthew and Luke's gospel. And so if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is trustworthy and true, and he rose from the dead, 
I should take him at his word. Well, please keep your Bibles open, as I said, and uh, we're going to start in Genesis 6 uh, with a first point from verses 11 to 17, that is, rest will come through judgment. And it's clear that this destruction that's about to come is God's action in response to that human wickedness. This flood is no accident, and the writer leaves us in no doubt about it. And notice, did you, the references back to the creation story. At the start of Genesis, God creates the world and saw that it was good, and then created mankind and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But now here in verse 11, instead of seeing good, God sees the earth was corrupt. And instead of, instead of filling the earth with good things, humans have filled the earth with violence. And deep down we know, don't we? It isn't a surprise. We only have to think for ourselves back over the past week to know that we've done things that we've said or, or thought that are not good. Taylor Swift uh, last year released her album Midnight's and the song Antihero on it contains the line, did you hear my covert narcissism I disguise as altruism? Fancy words, I know, but she's saying, even when I'm seemingly doing good things, I'm really doing it for me. Even if I'm doing something selfless, it's really for me, for my ego to be recognized or praised. And the chorus of the song goes, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Even our good deeds are twisted and tainted. And this problem is at the root of all the problems the world faces. And if you're ever in doubt about that, think about it every time you leave the house and lock the door or buy something in the shop and pay on your credit card and enter a PIN code. If the world wasn't corrupted, we wouldn't need locks or two-factor bank security. The theologian John Calvin once wrote, the wonder is not that there was a flood, but that there was only one. And I think naturally we do miss the weight of this. Most of us will know this story of Noah like the back of our hands, we've been taught it since primary school, and we trivialize it. We turn it into a U-rated film for the kids with the animals coming in two by two, the elephant and the kangaroo. And the reality is that it's nowhere near a U or a PG or even a 12. And I realized this the other day when I was making toast and we had this plate in our cupboard. And you can see a, a cutesy depiction of the ark with the animals and some drops of rain falling from the sky there. And the words over the top read, the animals went in two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Why hurrah? Well, they were being saved from certain death and destruction. But that's hardly going to make it onto a kid's plate, is it? Look at chapter 7, verse 17 with me. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in, in, and in whose nostrils was the breath of life, 
died, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that in the ark with them, those who were in the, with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We can only imagine the scenes of destruction and death as the waters rose. And like Noah, the rest of humanity did not know that this was coming. Families, the elderly, children, climbing onto rooftops to try and escape in vain the rising waters. People sprinting up mountains and hills to try and outrun the waves. This is God undoing creation. And it should stop us cold. Sin and wickedness have warped this earth and God has to act. He is pure and holy and can't tolerate sin. God has to deal with it. If he doesn't, then there's no difference between good and evil. And God can't be good and just. A few weeks ago, I was walking my eldest Nathan to school and we were talking about what they've been up to in class and he, he mentioned that he was a bit upset about something. And immediately as a parent, your mind thinks, oh, what's, what's what now? Is it bullying or, or worse? And it turns out that he was just upset that they'd spent a long time working on a writing project, but the teacher never appeared to read or, or mark it. In our hearts, we know that there must be a weighing up of our lives. It's the only just thing to do. God must mark our work and we will be found wanting. Now it might be tempting to skip over this idea of jump, uh, judgment and some people might say to you, oh, but I'm, I'm more of a New Testament kind of guy rather than this Old Testament judgment stuff. The thing is, Jesus himself warns us not to do that very clearly. For example, here in Matthew's gospel, he says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be, left, will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Jesus is saying, just like the flood for people in Noah's time, the Son of God will return to judge the world. And there will be a judgment. And there will be destruction and ultimately death for those that reject him. And as uncomfortable as it makes us, we can't ignore God's verdict. Which begs the question, do you believe that? Do you believe the world is broken by sin and there will be a judgment? And to Jesus' command, will you be ready for it? So in the midst of this flood, we have Noah. Can you imagine being Noah in that position? You live in the middle of the desert, pretty much. It's now um, kind of northern Iraq, eastern Turkey, that kind of part of the world. And God tells you he's about to destroy the world 
destroy all other life in judgment. And then he asks you to build a boat. If that were me, I'd be thinking, that sounds crazy. <laughs> that can't be right, surely. You must be talking in metaphors, right, God? Sure, I'll, I'll build a boat. But in faith, Noah acts. He builds a boat. It's a big one. In modern measurements, it's about 450 feet long. It's about one and a quarter times the length of a, a, a normal football pitch. And in proportions wide, it's, it's, it's long, it's wide, and it's deep. And I'm told that's exactly the kind of um, boat you want to ride if, you, if you're in, wanting to ride out tough seas. And he assembles his family and all kinds of animals, and some were for sacrifice, some were for food, and others for repopulating the world again. And in gathering these animals, Noah is providing this care over creation that we were meant to be, that humankind was meant to have. And in 7 verse 5 we're told, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You see, faith acts on God's warning. Noah didn't wait until it started raining to get proof that it was going to happen. By then it would have been too late. And he probably looked ridiculous building this boat on dry land, nowhere near the sea. Can you imagine his neighbors jeering at him? Lovely day, Noah. <laughs> Still no rain, huh? But Noah trusted God and did what he was commanded to do. And in doing so, he creates this place of rest and refuge from the coming storm, where he and his family can hide from the destruction that's about to befall the world. And it was only in that ark that there was safety. Outside was death and destruction. And the challenge is there for us, isn't it? People might jeer at us because we're Christians, and they'll tempt us to stop and, and give up getting ready for Jesus. But as Noah's family hid in the ark, so we hide in Jesus. He's our true ark, and the one that will protect us from the storm and the judgment. And so we are to trust him, because only in Jesus is there safety from God's judgment. And as we look to the cross where Jesus died, we can know for sure that God has dealt with sin. And we saw that last week, didn't we? God must deal with sin, but he's not unmoved by our plight. And ultimately, that judgment was taken by Jesus himself so that we can be safe. And for Noah, finally, when the floods subside, we can see that rest will come in a new creation. Look back at uh, chapter 8, verse 1 that we finished our reading with earlier. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now when it says that God remembered Noah, it doesn't mean that he'd somehow forgotten about him floating out on the floodwaters in this giant boat with what was left of life. Although they had been adrift for nearly five months at this point, so at times they might well have been tempted to think that God had forgotten them. But no, when it says that God remembered Noah, it means that God is about to keep his promise. Back in chapter six, he told Noah that he was going to establish a covenant. In other words, a promise with Noah. And now he's going to begin his work of redeeming the world that had been destroyed by sin. And how does God do this? 
he makes a wind blow over the earth. And the word used for wind there is the same word used right at the very beginning of Genesis in creation when the spirit of God is hovering over the waters, ready to bring creation out of chaos. Do you see, do you see the link? God's now going to begin that renewal of creation. After the destruction of the world comes a new creation. Noah is the start of this second chance and those with him in the ark too. And the ark finally comes to rest, finally on dry land in 8.4, 8 verse 4. And it's the same word rest that echoes Noah's name. Relief, finally. And now the story slows down a bit and we're waiting with the occupants in the ark for them to step out into this new creation. But not yet. It's another six weeks of being in the ark before Noah sends out the dove in verse 8. And even then, it's a case of not yet. We have family down south, so visiting them usually involves a long drive up and down the A1 and M1 motorways. And on our way home, we might have been in the car for maybe five hours or so. And you're coming up on Scotch Corner, and you finally see the signs to Newcastle, and you get excited. You're nearly there. But there's still another hour to go. And that last hour can drag on more than the previous five. And for Noah and his family in the ark, it's been 197 days since the door shut by the time the dove finally returns with evidence of the new creation. The anticipation must have been immense for them after all they've been through. And finally, they leave their literal lifeboat and step out into the new world. Chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Do you see the command there? Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. It's the same command that God gives to mankind in chapter one. And there's this great anticipation that comes as the slate has been wiped clean. And the overwhelming sense here is one of Hope. After the terrifying scene of destruction and judgment, we see that God is a God of hope. But it doesn't take a genius to realize that this isn't the end of the story. Noah isn't our true rest. And this isn't the true new creation. It doesn't take long for the wheels to fall off the wagon again. Even still within Noah's lifetime, we see the reality of sin creeping back in and corrupting the world again. More on that in the next few weeks. But if Noah isn't the true rest, then we have to see him as a signpost that does two things. First, just like that causeway, in, the sign on the causeway to Lindisfarne, he reminds us of the coming judgment where God will wrap up all of time and history and ask us to give an account for our lives. Measured against God's standard, we all fall short. And secondly, he's a signpost that points us to the true rest that is found in Jesus and the true new creation that Jesus will usher in. The fulfillment of the promises in Noah are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He is the answer 
to the problem the world's face, world is facing. And when we look at Jesus, we can have a sure and certain hope in the face of that judgment. So how about you this morning? How about you? Are you living a life of comfort thinking this is all ridiculous? This is just a kid's story? Judgment will never come. The Bible says don't be deceived. Get on board the ark with Jesus whilst there's still time. Are you maybe on the boat but thinking, God's forgotten. It's been too long. God has forgotten you. Well, keep on remembering God's promises because he will remember those who are faithful. Or are you hearing God's command, pursuing a life, live by faith, obeying whatever it takes, and patiently resting in Christ, enduring, praying, and longing for Jesus' return? Let me pray. Hear these words from the old hymn by Edward Moat. His oath, his covenant, his blood are my defense against the flood. When all round my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the hope that there is in Jesus, that we can trust in him for protection against all the storms of this life, as well as the storm of your righteous and holy judgment. We pray that we would be people who remember your promises and keep trusting. Please help us to encourage one another this morning in that. Amen.